So today we're going to talk about wool. I think it'll be kind of the, it, there's like a lot of the things we've talked about and we'll talk about. I think we can go on tangents all over the place and each question probably has an, you know, 30, 40 minute discussion <laughs> on each of them. So, yeah, but I think yeah. we ought to just start at the top and kind of just go through some of the basics and, and, um, you know, the, the, uh, I guess the first question I got is what's the difference between coarse wool and fine wool? You hear a lot about those terms, but what, what defines that and what, what's the difference between those and why? Well, the, the way I look at that, there's, you know, there's several different measurement systems that we've used in wool over the years. I think what we look at is, is our micron measurement, um, in the fiber. And I know you guys do some, you guys test, all your wool, do you send samples in of all your wool? Uh, not everything, all the big lots. So anything okay. over seven to 10 bales will test. It depends, unless there's a special reason. Yeah, right, right. We've done, I mean, we're, we're a different setup entirely, but we've sent some of our wool into the Montana State Lab. Um, and so our, I think kind of the dividing line that I look at, um, and certainly with our wool is probably that 22, 23 micron and lower would be fine wool and, and anything above that would be medium to coarse. Um, a lot of our wool is in that 27 to 31 micron um, range, which, which makes it pretty coarse. And I think, you know, from a commodity standpoint, at least with our wool, um, that dividing line has a lot to do with the value and marketability of our wool if we're selling it in lots with other producers. Um, but I also think that that's not the only measurement in terms of wool quality. The breeds that we run have some different, different qualities to their wool, even though it, it would measure coarse, um, that could provide some other opportunities for us, I think. So you wanna, uh, that's actually one of my questions right there that I, I is, uh, what are, oftentimes everybody talks about micron and micron, um, I believe it's 22, under 22 micron you can wear against your skin without being itchy. And so that's usually the reason why they, the difference between fine wool and coarse wool. But um, you touched on it there. What are some of the other ways to measure wool, which are just as or more important than micron? Well, and you, you've hit on, on the next to skin where, um, and there's some properties in our wool that, you know, I'm, I'm obviously biased, but I've got, I've got some knit garments made with our wool that are perfectly comfortable to wear. Um, you know, luster is a, a factor in wool quality that um, in terms of its, its um, I guess you could kind of define that as shininess, but a lot of the long wools, the blue face luster wools like we've got, um, are really high luster wools, which make them attractive for um, some outer garment type things. Um, you know, the amount of crimp, um, the, the composition of the scales on the wool fiber makes some wools easier to felt. And so while it's a, a real niche market, our particular wool is, is pretty desirable in terms of the felting um, market because it does hold together well um, when it's felted. What are some of the other quality parameters that you guys look at in your wool um, in terms of value? 
Yes, so some of the other parameters we look at are uh, yield number one, that's the, um, the finished product you have in your wool. So you take the grease and the vegetable matter out and um, any other contaminants. And that's, that's a really important uh, measurement for us. Strength is a very important thing. Um, California wool, because with typical California wool, because we lamb in the fall and shear in the spring, our break is in the middle of the wool. And if you can move that break to one end or the other, that's the weakest point of the wool. So that's when you pull it, that's where it breaks most consistently at. California wool tends to break in the middle of the fiber, which is a big discount versus the rest of the nation. Um, right. Because if you want a piece broken off, you want a small piece, not the whole thing split in half. And so that's a really big factor. And if you can move that break, you can add substantial value to your wool clip. We haven't done that, but that's, that's a factor. Um, then also length, the longer the fiber, the better it holds as you weave it together. Um, and then one of the main things is when we're shearing, I, I stand at the press and we feel every fleece and there's a hand care, I, I, don't, I don't know the term for it, but it's a hand, it's a feel of that fleece and it's a softness of that fiber. Yeah. And there's a substantial difference that's kind of outside of micron that is a factor in, in our wool. And if you have a real fine wool fleece, but it has a rough hand, we pull it out. And um, vice versa, if we have a coarser wool, maybe a 24, 25, but it has a really, really nice hand and it's a long fibered wool, we'll actually put it into our fine end line just because it's gonna help that wool a bunch. Um, and then the last thing is um, the brightness, the whiteness of the wool is also a thing we yep. can work towards because um, the whiter it is, the easier it is to dye. And in American wool, it tends to, American wool tends to be yellow because of the Rambouillet influence. And so those are, those are probably the main factors um, we use. So you said your coarse wool, um, you use the coarse wool for felting and yeah. felts go into hats and all sorts of different vests and things like that. So just cause you can't wear a base layer of a coarse wool doesn't mean you can't have a coarse wool jacket or a coarse wool hat or a couple other different garments. Um, but can you talk about maybe a few of the other uses for coarse wool? Yeah, yeah. You know, um, there is a growing market, I think, in, in coarse wool and things like bedding material and, and quilt, quilting material. Um, we've sold quilt bats and, and things like that. Um, there are folks on the North Coast that, that do a lot of bedding material. So pillow stuffing and... and uh, mattress covers and, and things of that nature where the fiber itself is covered with something softer, but it provides some loft and some insulation and, and some other properties. There's also a, a growing market for using wool as home insulation. And um, we actually thought about that this year with, with our coarse wool not really selling, um, about taking our clip and, and at least having it scoured and, and, uh, and cleaned and then using it for attic insulation or, or wall insulation. Um, it has really, really good insulating properties. It's fire resistant. Um, so it does all the things that a fiberglass insulation would do. And yet we grow more of it every year. We, you know, it's, it's renewable um, on an annual basis. And so I think there's some opportunities to take some of those types of products and really expand on what we can do with coarse wool. Isn't it amazing how so many products 
that are sold that are these petroleum-based products or different synthetic-based products and how they are sold selling, but with the sales pitch of what wool already does. Yep. Be it sports yep. active wear and its moisture wicking qualities, be it insulation and fire retardant, be it heavy work wear and durability, all of those things wool has already that's yep. natural to the characteristics of wool um but yet uh synthetics are you know they they, they rule the roost it seems like they dominate the market yep yeah yeah do you think that's changing those that it seems like um wool's kind of coming back in terms of of desirability and acceptability and and access to to those types of things is that changing a little bit Absolutely. I think so. I, I think, um, yeah, I mean, there's this, the, the, I mean, the whole push to natural, um, you know, or, and, and understanding where things come from, a wool really fits yeah. into that well. The only reason wool isn't sold is because people don't understand where it's from and how it's made. Um, I mean, right. it, it's, it, right. it's kind of gets back to that diversity of the sheep. It's, it's such a, such an amazing product there's a reason it was the first domesticated animal because of the characteristics of of wool i mean i wear a long sleeve wool shirt undershirt in the summertime because it keeps the sun off of my skin and it breathes and yep. and yeah and i stay cooler wearing wool than i do with short sleeves and uh yeah i think um just in our own deal we we market our wool um we market wool a lot of different ways, but the main, our, our best wool from our use goes to a local American produced um, production system. And um, the, the opportunity there is really phenomenal. It, it, it seems to be consistently growing. Um, the large brands are starting to look for wool. And then with the, yeah. with the issues that we've had with the, the trade issues, but then Kind of a realization of our dependency on foreign processing yeah. and the crutch that that actually is which now with this COVID-19 deal how it's it's really destroyed a lot of uh, international trade just it's just stopped flow there's not not flow right now that's really um, it's really highlighted the value of American grown processed and produced products yeah. whether it's wool yeah. but any kind of product really um, and yeah um, I, that's i i think there's some there's some interesting things developing kind of for smaller scale producers and for coarse wool um here locally too you know there's there's fiber shed over on the north coast um that's really focused on kind of restoring a a more regionalized fiber producing system and they've taken the step actually of, of actually forming a co-op as well to do some marketing um and and we've been we've been in discussion with them this year about maybe taking our wool clip as a, a trial run to do something different with coarse wool um but keep it in california keep it local and, and make it available as some of those other types of products whether it's bedding or, or insulation or what have you so i I think there's there's some interest again in in kind of rebuilding that that more regionalized system that that we once had in this country. So it's what exciting. kind of options are? Or I guess let's go to the basics of how do you process wool. So the shearing, every sheep shear sheep farmer knows what shearing is, but 
What happens when you shear? You shear and then where does it go? Well, I can describe what we do and what we've done with some of our wool because it's, it's kind of a microcosm and, and yours is probably go following the same process on a much larger scale, I suspect. So when we shear, we do um, look at each fleece as it comes out of the shearing barn and, um, and we make some sorts like you do in terms of quality. Um, we don't have as much to sort off and so we probably don't have as much uniformity in our, our A line versus our B line of wool. Uh, but we do some sorts and we pull some, we pull, um, we skirt those fleeces. From there, typically wool is scoured, which is a process of removing the, the lanolin and the, um, the dirt and the veg matter. Um, we have sent some to a, a little scouring facility in, in Woodland in Yolo County here locally, and it's interesting to see that process work, um, basically warm water and detergent. And, um, and from that, you get a, a product with the grease removed. Um, from there, typically wool is carded, which is a, a method of aligning all the fibers so that further processing can be done with that. So it, it uh, from that process, we get we get um, we have the ability to to felt with it or to spin it for yarn um, to do a variety of things with it from there. But really, it's it's the scouring, carding, and then spinning process in a nutshell that that gets it to a finished product. Um, did I miss anything? <laughs> uh, no, I got um, shearing, sorting, cleaning, carding, spinning, and weaving. Yep. Which is yep. basically, I mean, there's a lot of detail in that. And I think we can take, uh, you could take two hours and really get into deep diving. But it, it really is amazing on the wool side how when you, when you break down the, the uh, production system, how many steps there are through it and why it's yeah. so expensive in the store versus the, yeah. the farm gate value of wool. And um, then you have different, and where a lot of the expense comes in, I think is the different facilities, abilities to handle the types of wool. Some specialize in yeah. coarse wool, some specialize yeah. in fine wool, some specialize in the in-between. The size of the lot makes a difference as to where you can go. Um, colored yeah. wool, non-colored wool. You have some yeah. like uh, crossbred types with some hair. All those kind of things factor in on where exactly you can go. And I think that's one yeah. of the biggest challenges or pressures on the, the wool industry is we, we um, you know, over the past 50 years, our, our infrastructure as a commercial industry has collapsed. But I feel like we're at this turning point where now there is a lot of demand for processing on a small to mid-sized scale. And even on the large scale too, the, the two big scouring plants are backed up. And I know the spinner there, I guess there's one spinner in the country and, and, um, and it, it one big, you know, big lot type place. And yeah, and it's, uh, yeah. there's a lot of pressure on that. And so hopefully over the next 10 to 15 years, we can add some infrastructure there, which will help people um, take their product to market. Um, Absolutely. What uh, one, one kind of opportunity for us, that has been really exciting is, and, and I, you know, being a, being a guy that isn't really too into knitting, I, I'm <laughs> absolutely blown away by the 
expanding market of the knitting industry, which always has been described as a cottage niche industry. And it is yep. nowhere near that anymore. It is a full-fledged, powerful industry that commands a lot of value, demand on products. And, and it's a, I, I, I'm, I'm really excited about the knitting industry, which is funny for me to say, but I'm curious your <laughs> thoughts on that, that market and the opportunities for people to take their wool, spin it themselves and sell it at the farmer's market or on yep. Etsy or some of these platforms. I, I think there's huge opportunities there too. And it's, it's interesting in that um, that segment of the market for wool is really focused on, on kind of the connection with producers. Um, it's been really fun on Instagram, which I, I hear you're on Instagram too. Um, but to connect with, you know, people that are, are seeking out sources of wool and, and want to know, how that wool's produced and where it comes from and what kind of sheep there are they are and and all of those things I think that's that's created a real connection between the producer and the end user that's exciting and and I think durable to the extent that we can supply that market with with products that people feel a connection with I think um, you know we've we've done a little bit of of value-added processing of our wool at farmers markets. It's interesting in California that if you have a natural colored wool product, you can sell on the certified side of a farmer's market because you can certify that that wool came from your sheep. If you dye it, you can't be on the certified side of the market under current regulation, which is, you know, th there's- no, it sounds like there's, we put farmers market regulations and rules on our topic list. <laughs> <laughs> That's for a future t future right. conversation, but um, you know I think one of the issues at a small scale like we operate is this idea of value added, and if you look at at kind of the the governmental definition of value added farm products, basically it's changing the form of the product from one form to another. Um, I'm enough of an economist that that doesn't totally satisfy me. I think you actually have to add value to it if it's, if you're going to call it a value added product. And so you have to account for the cost of taking that, that raw fleece and going through that production chain and getting a skein of yarn um, that you can then sell. And, and you have to be able to, to add value at each step of that process. So if I can sell my wool for $1.50 a pound grease weight, I've got to account for that cost as I go through the, the processing system and make sure that that dollar fifty um, and the expense to take it from that grease wool to a finished product is accounted for in the price that I'm selling my. And a profit margin. Yep. Because yep. you're not working for free. Yep. Otherwise, yep. you're not adding value. You're just maintaining the exactly. Sales. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, it's it's amazing yep. to me that this this um, this spinning market or the knitting market, how uh, you mentioned the natural colored. So um, historically, the whole time we've ever been at Amy Livestock, I can't do anything with the black wall. We take yeah. it, put it on the truck, we take it to the auction yard, they sell it. It's, you know, it's decent black wool. It's nothing bad, nothing good. Um, but we've gotten no, no money for it. 25 cents, 30 cents maximum. Yeah. 
Well, now this last year, um, I was able through the the knitting world, we're able to sell our black wool now at a re, at a good value. I'd say the same or more than our high end fleece, and it's all wow. because we're able to get it into those markets um, that are there. But just navigating the uh, production chain to get your product from the farm gate to that person's door is is uh, is quite a quite a challenge, but there's a lot of opportunities with the new media, the different platforms that are out there. There's um, the Etsy's, I think the big one, but there's yep. a couple of like uh, Facebook for knitters. I can't remember the names of it, but there's all sorts of platforms like that, that if you, you know, if you can take your product and get it to a point, you can start monetizing it better. And it's certainly, I think in the, the current economic situation where, um, where everything is kind of a lot of things have collapsed, including the lamb meat price. Our industry has become so dependent on the meat and has thrown the wool by the wayside uh, that times like this, it, it really makes you realize and appreciate how those multiple streams of income off of multiple economic sources are really important to try to maintain. And one of the main base reasons why we all have sheep is so we can sell wool and meat, not just meat. Because when that meat market crashes, you still have some wool. Now, today's world, the wool and the meat are down, but that that makes you look at taking it that next step further on how do you take your products and figure out a way to contract them and create these partnerships so that way you can help isolate yourself from some of these downturns. Sometimes the value in a contract or a direct market isn't the price you're receiving. Oftentimes people chase dollars per pound or the price, but having an opportunity to sell your product oftentimes is worth more than that premium that you think you're getting by getting a better price than your neighbor. Really it's being able to sell it when things are down has a huge value on, on, on your bottom line. I think that's really important. And I also think one of the, the, things that is important regardless of the scale that you're operating on is the reputation for the quality of your product, whether that's meat or fiber. Um, you know, I think, I think when people know what you produce and how you produce it, and, and I think looking at, at your operation, you're very transparent in, in the things that you do to produce a quality product. We try to be really transparent with what we do too. And I think, I think because of social media now, that ability, that, that um, transparency and reputation have value in the marketplace. And I think that really shows when we're going through a situation like this as well, because you have an opportunity to move your product because people know, know that they're getting value for it. And I think that's, um, that's kind of an underappreciated, particularly for new people getting into the business, how important that attention to detail and quality is um, and how that reputation, good or bad, stays with you. Um, but I, I think that's a, you know, we've had that experience where, um, where we were able to get more money for our lambs, for example, just because people knew what they were getting. And I think that's important too. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and just the value when things are down, like, 
right now in the California Springland market, there's just there's basically no bids for people wanting to buy sheep. But if you have a contract and a reputation and some quality, you'll get your sold where somebody else might not. And so, right. yeah, right. having those maintaining quality and maintaining good relations and, you know, understanding where your product's going and yeah. um, right. taking the initiative to uh, and, and looking at those. I think a lot of times people like to trade or when they're when they're trying to price their product, they look at it as a as an adversarial position. And, um, you know, you're trying to get the most you can from that buyer who's trying to get the least out of you. And it's an adversarial role. Right. And I think it's really important to realize that both sides are running businesses yep. and you need to ask for the most you can get and they need to ask for the least they're able to pay. But at the same time, that relationship at its base is a complementary relationship because if all segments are not successful, the foundation collapses. Yep. And so to always remember that these relationships and these the industry partners that you have and these, these roles, they're not adversarial at their core. They're, it's really important that you go into a negotiation with the idea of creating long-term partnerships that are going to pay everybody dividends year over year over year, not I'm going to get the most I can for today and I hope they go broke next year. I'll sell it to someone else. Yeah, you know, right. that, 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 that's not healthy for an industry. And um, like I said, that doesn't take away from the fact that there is give and take when you're negotiating a price. It's just that you got to remember that the reason you're at the table talking isn't because you hate each other. Yep. It's because you want to work together and there's a, there's a, there's a base partnership there that you need to maintain. Um, well, so, and I, think, yeah. I think that's I'm just going to add, I think even at the scale that we operate at and, and having done some direct marketing in the past, um, remembering that we're part of this bigger system that, that we all need to be profitable to, to be able to sustain it. And um, I think that's a really important distinction that it's, it's there, as you said, there's give and take. But it's also really important to remember that, that I, I need those businesses further down the production chain to be successful as well, or, or I don't have any place to go even at my size with the products that we produce. I think that's a really important point. So my last question that I think we ought to touch on since we're talking a bit about wool, but can you talk real quick about um, about how to how you prep your sheep and how you run a shearing day just quick yeah yeah and it'd be interesting to see how similar or different they they are to yours so we typically shear about six weeks after the first or the last lambs are born which seems to always put us around mother's day much to my wife's delight um but the sheep shear easier um after after they've been nursing for a little while so for us, we shear here at our home place. It's the only time of year that we have all our sheep at our home place. They come home, we typically shear on a Saturday. So the sheep come home here Wednesday or Thursday. And um, we pull them off the night before we shear. We pull them off feed and water um, just so that they're more comfortable on the shearing board um, because they don't have full rumens and you know, it's like me, you know, if you made me 
sit uh, cross-legged style after Thanksgiving dinner, I couldn't do it for very long. But if I haven't eaten for, for 12 hours, it's a little more comfortable. Um, we have still have nursing lambs when we shear. So we, um, we put the first group of, of ewes that we shear under cover overnight, just in case we get a heavy dew or, or a rain um, so that they're dry to begin the day with. We sort the lambs off and, um, and then we shear in a bullpen style with a single shearer. So we put, um, it's about a 12 by 12 pen. We put eight ewes in there with the shearer. He catches them one at a time. As the last one shorn, we kick those out onto grass, bring the next set of ewes in to be shorn. Um, as he's shearing, we pull fleece out and put it on a skirting table, which allows us to look at the quality of the wool, um, allow second cuts to, to drop out, little short pieces of wool to drop out of that fleece. And then we, um, we sort wool by black face versus white face into, into two different sets of wool. Um, use come back out nice and bright and sparkly and uh, go back on grass and find their lambs and, and we go back to the ranch the day after sharing. So um, that's kind of our system. How, how do you guys go about what the shearing day look like for you? So shear, shearing day for us starts about two weeks before shearing day. Um, we have EID tags in all of our use ears, um, which we record uh, all sorts of different data points on them. Um, one of the data points we record is um, we have our ewes, we take our ewe lambs, we did all the sheep last year and then this year we just do the ewe lambs, so we just do the ewe lambs every year. And we go through the ewes by hand and we, we mark in the ear tag the coarse wool lines. Okay. So the theory is always, well the theory that we run with in all of the way we operate is um, we're always wanting to eliminate the bottom five to ten percent yep and with the ear tags we are uh we're sorting the bottom five to ten percent so we take take all those sheep and we run them through otter drafter and we sort the coarse ones off the ewe lambs from that past year will bring through sort by hand and we'll sort those off and so then we'll have bunches of sheep and we'll have um basically the, the, the standard U line, and then we'll have a coarse wool line. Okay. Um, and then to make things fun, this, this year we bought a bunch of sheep out of Idaho. Um, so we had three lines. <laughs> we had Idaho, fine wool, and coarse. So then um, shearing day, we do the same thing, leave them in the pen overnight. Uh, yep. We forgot one day, first day of shearing, and the plant got really wet. Because <laughs> yeah, we're like, oh, better do better put them in overnight. But um, we uh, we shear with a with a mobile crew that comes in. They shear on a land plant. A lot of places use trailers shearing trailers. These are yeah. uh, it's a a land plant. So they put plywood down, build a structure over the top of themselves with canvas and pipes, and then ha each shear has a pen. And then you okay. the use in the backside, and they grab them one by one, shear them, and kick yeah. them out into their pens. And then when they're in their pens, we'll scan their ear tags and, and brand them and kick them out and count them. Okay. And so that's generally how it works. Uh, but when we're, when we're shearing during the use, um, I'm constantly at the wool press itself and we don't have a skirting table. So when they're shearing on the ground, the wool pickers pick it up. And when they pick the wool up, 
they do it correctly, which a lot of times they don't, but when they do it correctly, they'll pick it up and the heavy stuff goes to the bottom and you swipe that skirting off and leave it in the plant and another guy rakes that off. Okay. And we also have guys with rakes the whole time, making sure bellies are going in the bellies bags and yep. bags going in its own spot. So we try to keep it as clean as possible. We take our own crew and put them in this inside. It's one thing I'd encourage anybody to do um, if they're hiring a custom crew out is be involved, get in the pens, get in that's and start right. like, don't get in the way of the shears. Cause that's the number one rule is protect the shears and make sure you don't make them mad. Cause they're, it's hard work and you don't want to make it harder. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. Um, if you get involved and care about the wool, it helps those shears and everybody involved on that custom crew side actually respect and appreciate the craftsmanship of what they're doing, which is something that we really lack, I think, in especially, I think it's really hard to find, um, you know, to find crews with 15 guys that all of them care about the craft and not just about the money. And, and right. there's, there's certainly shears out there that do that, but they cost too much for me and, and it's hard to get them, get one guy to come in and do 4,000 sheep. Yep. So, yep. Uh, but it's, the, it, you know, that craftsmanship side of the, the deal it's two sides. You as a producer have to care about the wool, which makes the shears care about the job they're doing. And so that's really important. Um, I, so we go in and we, yeah. and then it'll come to the press and on our fine wool line, I'll go and I'll be sorting every fleece and I'll be cutting out any of the off stuff. So anything that's too short, anything that's too dirty, anything that skirts that came in, I'll pull that off and we'll be pressing it. And then on the course line, I'll reverse that. And we'll just, I'll be creaming the best fleeces out of there. So anything that has come through that's pretty nice, that, that can still hold, hold together well, um, those kind of things I'll, I'll take and I'll put into the, into the fine line. So I'm constantly at the press sorting the wool. And then Jeff, thank goodness for Jeff, because he's the one that does all the accounting and he's counting sheep and moving bunches and stacking wool bales and making sure everything's getting accounted for correctly because there's no way I could do it all by myself. I've tried before and I end up, you know, not being at the press for half the day. Um, and so that that's kind of generally what it is. And then probably the most important thing that we do after shearing is once we finish shearing, we spray all of our sheep with antiparasitic. Yep. Um, and that will do so much for your wool clip for the following year. Yep. What do you use? permethrin okay yeah just, we we do use it we use a pour on at that at that stage too but while we're before we ship back on sunday we'll treat everybody I, one of the things that that you said reminded me i think um you know at our scale it's not like somebody can come and and knock out all of our use in an afternoon it's a full day's worth of work for a guy who's good um and we've got a great shearer who who takes pride in his craft and, and has helped me learn how to better our, our wool clip. But we also have a discussion at the beginning of the day, just to outline what everybody's going to do so that everybody's aware of what their job is that day. And my job is typically to make sure that everything runs correctly, that somebody's catching sheep if they have to, that, that the shearer is never waiting for sheep. We get a good price because he, finishes one you and the next one's ready for him. And I think that's part of, of my job is to make sure that day, that part of the day flows well. Because we've got just one guy shearing, I can all as it comes off typically, which 
I think is important regardless of the scale that you're operating at to take take the time to look at what you're producing and to be able to, to assess the quality of, of what's coming off the sheet. Um, but it's, it's a similar day, just a different, a different scale and pace of operation, really. Yeah. Same day. Just, I got, I got seven of them and you got, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> to do it in exactly. One. exactly. Yeah. So um, I, the, the other thing too, we do is, um, we always share sheer pairs in the morning and dries in the afternoon. Oh, okay. That's another big important factor because you want to make sure you finish your bunches. So if you, if you have using lambs together, we share yep. those in the morning. So that way they can, everything can be paired up and there's no question you're going to get it done. And then we'll fill the end of the day with the dries. So that way we can cut that bunch in half however we want and, and um, they can shear to whatever time they need to shear till. And we, we end our day, um, our single day with shearing the bucks for the same reason, get all the, the pairs out of the way and then the, the rams come in to be sure. Yeah, we do shear our rams in the morning. We got 130 and um, so those guys, we actually split them this year. We did half of them one day and half of them the other day just because they, they're big and the guys get tired. So yep. Get them yep. done when they're fresh. Yep. Yep. But I have yeah. one last question for you. Yeah. What's the oldest wool garment that you own? Hmm. Oldest wool garment that I own. That's tough. I'm pretty young. Um, I got a 13 year old hat that I wear. Oh, that's my rain hat. I wear, I wear it in the winter. The cowboy hat. Yeah. But, and it's still in good shape. Good felted, good felted wool hat. Some good yep. wool in there. Um, the undershirts that I wear, they they last probably oh they they last four or five years at least, and you wear them every day. So yep. you get yep. a lot of wears out of them. What yep. about you? I've got I've got a Pendleton that belonged to my dad that's older than I am, and I've got a Filson coat that's probably older than I am. That's cool. Both of which I, I, I actually, I've got a Pendleton coat older than I am and they, they get pretty good use in the wintertime. Yeah. It's, uh, it's amazing how well it holds up. I, I, one time I heard there's, they, they, they're hard to find, but back in the day, they, they were making Levi's denim with what interwoven with wool. Yeah. And then the pants companies, they couldn't sell anymore because you'd buy one or two pairs and then they last last all your last life for like three years and so they wouldn't, <laughs> they wouldn't be able to sell another pair and uh, and then of course the high price point but still it uh yeah now they i go through levi's pretty quick <laughs> yeah me too me too me too yeah well when we talk next week you will be done sharing right oh uh, yeah i hope so oh uh, yeah we'll be done <laughs> i we only got like two three days left so we'll be done quick good yeah, so I'm excited. I'm excited. Our wool was great this year too. I, I it's a little bit dirty as far as stickers. I think because of the dry February, we had some foxtail and fillery bloom a little earlier than normal, and so there was a little bit more in there than I really was hoping for. But uh, I was really pleased with the direction our wool has gone since we've kind of implemented the ear tag system four or five years ago. We're seeing the fruits of that now in our genetics and the difference in the wool quality between our coal use and our running age use was substantial, which is what I like. 
because that means we're that's, progressing the right way. That's progress. Yep. And I'm really excited with that. And we've made some good wool purchases. We bought a fancy Merino Ram off of the California Ram sale. We're really excited about. It's got some phenomenal fiber, so it'll be good for that's our ewe lambs. And and uh, yeah, I'm, I love my wool, and I'm excited to get this year's up and tested. So. I, I, you know, regardless of scale, shearing time is a whole lot of work, but it's one of my favorite times of year too. Yeah. I really, I really like seeing, seeing that whole process from start to finish. And, um, yeah. Nice to have I'm it done, but nice. And lambing. Shearing and lambing, just there's something fun. Yeah. Shipping's yeah. fun too, but yeah. shearing and lambing are just tons of work and a lot of fun. That's why you do it. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right, Dan, I guess we're, we're done for this episode, but uh, we'll catch you next week on uh, Sheep Stuff You Should Know, huh? I'm Dan Macon, and you are? Ryan Mahoney. Awesome. See you next week. See you next week, Dan. Mm-hmm.